to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we talk justice over a cup of coffee with a special guest. On this episode, I was able to stretch the internet's tentacles in order to have a conversation with John Tanago in the Philippines. John is the director of IJM's Centre to End the Online Sexual Exploitation of Children. And it is the malevolent exploitation of the incredible life-altering resource that is the internet, which forms the subject of today's conversation. We touched on the issue of online sexual exploitation of children in an episode last year, where we heard from Special Agent Alani Bankhead. And today, we're returning to this issue to hear John's well-informed and enlightening perspective. So, like in some previous episodes, I will premise this podcast with a warning. Some of the content may be difficult to hear, and you may wish to choose a time and a place that's appropriate to listen to this one. But I would encourage you not to let that be a reason not to listen. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I strongly believe it's our duty to pay these ugly, uncomfortable, heartbreaking, fury-inducing issues our attention rather than choose to look the other way. There's nothing graphic or explicit in this conversation, but this crime type is unquestionably horrific. And sadly, it's growing at an expansive rate. We need to know more about it and what we can do to stem the tide and push back the waters to advance on the darkness. And this week's guest does an excellent job at leading us in that stance. And as ever, there is hope. John has plenty of hope to share with us. So let's do it, shall we? John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir, for taking the time to speak to me today, all the way from Cebu. What's the weather like in Cebu today? Uh, it's sunny and hot, which is how it is most year round. Oh, that's quite the opposite to what it's like in Norfolk, England today. It is grey and drizzly, how it's like most of the year round. Well, John, I have grabbed myself a coffee this morning, not only because I run a coffee company, but because it's the right time of the day to be caffeinated. What, what's, what's your coffee habits? I imagine four o'clock, it's too late to be having this conversation with a coffee in hand, would I presume correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, no coffee right now. Um, but I, I do sometimes have a, a tea, um, you know, late in the afternoon when I'm just sort of, you know, been talking for a long day and, and my throat needs something. So uh, but yeah, it's, it's past coffee hour. And how do you take your coffee, John? It's the question I ask every guest on the show. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, I actually, I, I like an iced coffee, um, which is, you know, not your traditional, but it's so hot here um, that if I'm going to go, if I'm going to go that route, it's going to have plenty of ice and, uh, and maybe some, I don't know, it, you know, it's Christmas time here. So maybe some kind of like Christmas flavoring in there just to spice it up a little bit. Very nice. A little nutmeg in there, something like that. That sounds festive, but cool as well. I, um, I wonder, John, before we, we get started and, and get onto the subject matter, which I, I would love you to educate us on and inform us on this issue of online sexual exploitation of children, 
cyber sex trafficking also referred to. I, I want to know a little bit more about this man that I'm speaking to. John, you obviously have what sounds like at least an American accent, but I'm speaking to you in the Philippines. So how's, how's that come to pass? Yeah, so I, I did uh, grow up most of my life in, in the United States. Um, and I was working as a lawyer for about six years in the city of Chicago before, before joining IJM and, and moving to the Philippines. And I guess how that came about is I was always drawn to issues of human trafficking and um, very, uh, very much followed the work of IJM around the world, especially as they started getting into work protecting children from child sex trafficking and, and so on. And about six years ago, this position opened up to work in Cebu field office to, as the field office director. And I just sort of jumped at it. Me and my wife at, uh, were just talking about, you know, would we move to the Philippines for a few years to you know, work with IJM? And, and it was sort of a no brainer um, because just uh, we just saw how important the work was to strengthen, you know, the capacity of justice systems in the developing world to protect children from just the worst kind of violence you could really imagine. And, we were parents and we said, let's do it. And then, you know, six years later, um, of course, you know, we're still here. And uh, it feels like the, the work is, uh, is just as important as ever. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. And I love that your wife was up for it. It became a no brainer. That's, that's, that's a remarkable merit to your, to your marriage. So you say you had children, you have children too. So they, they were part of that decision, were they? Well, they were they were quite young at the time, so I would say they were part of the announcement. Uh, we, <laughs> you know, let them know uh, we're you know we're moving, and they were young and you know up for the adventure. You know, they're a little bit older now, so uh, I think if we asked them now, they have more opinions than they did back then when they were still you know quite young. So it was more of the announcement from dad. Very wise. I think you timed that well. But hey, what a childhood to to grow up in in the Philippines and maybe it's a, it's a very broad question but could you perhaps try and describe what life looks like in Cebu or the main ways it's different to what it would have been like in in Chicago where you where you were before yeah I mean there's there's so many differences it's hard to know where to start but you know obviously um, Chicago you know similar to to the UK, you have different seasons. So you've got winter and spring, summer, autumn. But here in the Philippines, it's it, there's only two seasons. It's the rainy season, uh, where it's really you know humid, and then it's sunny season where it's really really hot. Um, and you don't you know you obviously don't get a fall or or winter. Um, so, I mean, on the, on the, on the plus side of that, um, my kids and I always joke, we can always go swimming. Um, the pool's always open, you know, all, all year round. And so, uh, it's certainly a very tropical climate, one where you can go for a walk, you know, any day, but, but not really during, you know, 9am and 3pm because it's, it's too hot. <laughs> oh, wow. And is, is the traffic as bad in Cebu as it's thought of as? Yeah, it's pretty terrible in Manila, right? Yeah, I mean, the traffic in Cebu is not as bad as Manila. Manila is certainly, you know, I think one of the worst. But 
But Cebu is, is getting a lot worse. More people have been moving into the city. Well, certainly before the pandemic, there was you know, robust development, lots of projects going up, condos and malls and, and so on. So the traffic is certainly, certainly bad. Cebu is, is one of those places where, you know, years ago it was just like a, a town, you know, and now it's this just huge city that continues to grow. So traffic is certainly a mainstay here as well. And at the moment, I know that your job title, at least on LinkedIn, has, has changed to the director of the Center to End Online Sexual Exploitation. So this is a fairly recent development for IJM, right? Yeah, it is. So since about 2015, we've been focused on strengthening the the justice system response in the Philippines to the crime of online sexual exploitation of children, which is really a form of human trafficking and modern slavery and we have really been pleased with the, the partnerships we've had with the Philippine government and with uh, foreign law enforcement agencies, with local nonprofit organizations and civil society. And it's really been just a great experience where we've seen the Philippine government um, significantly respond to the sexual exploitation of children and strengthen the justice system response, the, whole of society approach to this crime. And what we quickly realized is this is a a crime that is global in nature. It's not only happening in the Philippines, it's happening in other countries around the world. And so um, IJM tapped me to be the first director of the international response to online sexual exploitation of children. And and this is uh, for IJM, it's really our first international response to this crime through the center uh, to end online sexual exploitation of children, which is really focusing on the global nature of this crime. How do we help other governments and other NGOs around the world respond to it in similar ways to the Philippines has? How do we also engage with the technology and financial uh, private sector where we know this crime is being facilitated through those platforms and those those platforms are being abused uh, to commit this crime, and then also looking at the demand side, taking a you know a step outside of the developing world, but into those countries where the sex offenders are you know are sitting in the comfort of their home, paying for this abuse, live streaming it. How do we also address the demand side of this crime as well? So after leading the team in Cebu for you know close to six years, uh, I was eager to to you know, say yes to this new opportunity that IJM has, where we're really trying to take our, our work to combat OSEC um, and take it, you know, global. So yeah, you saw that on LinkedIn, that's my new position. And uh, I've been really enjoying it so far. That's great. That's great. And it suggests that you're going to be living in the Philippines for a few years to come, I would imagine. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, our, our, our program right now is definitely working very closely with our team in the Philippines. So that's, that's where the center is is based. That's really where we have, you know, our lawyers and social workers and other uh, other subject matter experts who have been, you know, combating this crime. So it does make sense for us to continue to base that out of the Philippines. Well, I I was present at the the online release of a study that IJM authored earlier on in the year, 
I think it came out in June or, or July, about the, the prevalence of this particularly pernicious and awful crime. And it looked at a victimology and, and the types of offenders. And, and it was really a, an interesting study. And I'd love for you to, to talk through that a little bit about some of the, the findings there. But I would also applaud you really on, uh, and certainly corporately as IJM, you mentioned that by forming this centre, it's looking to, to, to lead, to develop this issue, to work unilaterally and to, to coordinate with other organisations. And, and I think that was one of my clearest observations, actually being on that call and just seeing how many other agencies were part of that that seven-year study that you guys conducted, but also professionally. So in my last job, I was working for an anti-trafficking agency and we were exploring this issue as well. And IJM kept coming up and very much as the leaders in regards to NGOs around the world that are tackling this issue. So I, I definitely doff my cap to, to you and the guys out there are doing an amazing job. Actually, I tell you what, perhaps before we jump straight into this issue of OSEC, I think it would be worth mentioning the amazing success of uh, Project Lantern and the work that was done in the Philippines prior to this, this shift of focus. Maybe you could just explain a little bit about what, what took place there. So IJM launched an office in, in Cebu uh, in 2006 to address the child sex trafficking that was happening in bars and brothels and massage parlors and, and also in, uh, in red light areas in, you know, uh, just uh, where it was, it was quite rampant. And, and it was our first program where we, from the start, set out to measure a baseline of the prevalence of, of child sex trafficking, really with the purpose of, you know, towards the end of the project, conducting a prevalence study to show whether our program had an impact in, in protecting children from this crime, and, and not just protecting the children who were rescued and safeguarded, but protect, protecting you know, thousands and tens of thousands of other children who would never be abused in the first instance because uh, a deterrence was created. And those who were trafficking children realized that it's no longer uh, you know, a free-for-all. They can't just do it with complete impunity. And, and that's exactly what we saw. We saw, you know, this, this reduction. So somewhere between uh, 72% uh, of a reduction in, in the prevalence of children who are being sold night after night um, in bars and brothels. And, and, and then, so we, we also conducted a similar study in Metro Manila and Pampanga um, later on, uh, close to 2016. Uh, and overall, we saw 80% reduction in the availability of children in, in child sex trafficking establishments. And so what we learned is when you take a situation of impunity where traffickers are not being held accountable and you replace that with accountability, where week after week, bars are being shut down, traffickers are being arrested, the media is reporting on that, um, then, then criminals realize, oh, it's not worth it. There's a high risk that they will be caught and go to jail. And so they, they stop abusing children. Um, and we just saw a dramatic reduction in the prevalence of child sex trafficking uh, in, in our project areas in the Philippines. Um, and it really was just a reminder to us of what happens when you take a situation of impunity 
um, where traffickers are not afraid of getting caught. Well, when you have a situation like that, they just keep abusing children because they have nothing to fear. But when that is replaced with, with good law enforcement, with capacitated law enforcement, with prosecutions, uh, and you see the law being implemented, then it just changes the reality on the ground and, and traffickers realize, I, I need to stop doing this because I'm gonna get arrested just like you know the, the, the guy who was running the bar you know, next door. And so that was really Project Lantern focused on Cebu. And then we, we transitioned to work on the online sexual exploitation of children after that. I love that. I love the simplicity of that message to remove that feeling of impunity. It is simply the, the appropriate enforcement of law. It's not always as complex as people might think. It's not always the introduction of new legislation. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just enforcing it. And that is, that's amazing. What incredible figures, 70 to 80% reduction. That is extremely significant. So yeah, well worth, well worth mentioning that, I think. So for people that, you know, are unfamiliar with this issue and there are lots of there's lots of terminology attached to to this particular type of crime, and it can be quite confusing. I think I mentioned that uh, before this that I, we had Alani Bankhead come on, and she's a special agent in Hawaii tackling internet crimes against children. And we spent some time trying to distinguish what was ICAC and what was OSEC, and what how to how to figure out all of these different terms and what they refer to but john i know that the, the focus of this project is is called osec could you give us a quite high level description of, of what that is what that looked like yeah so what igm has been focusing on is really the sexual abuse and exploitation of children in the philippines to create new child sexual abuse materials these have primarily been in the form of live streams where children in the Philippines are being abused hands-on in person um, by traffickers. And that abuse is being live streamed to sex offenders around the world, including from the UK and the US and Australia. And those offenders are, are watching the abuse in real time. Um, they're often providing graphic instructions either through chats or audio to the in-person offender of, of what they want done to the child. And they're in some ways just, you know, remotely creating their own child sexual abuse video. And of course, this is also documented in photos and videos that are, are recorded and shared, but it's really a horrific form of, of online sexual exploitation of children because it involves the repeated abuse of children for, offenders who want to view it in real time. And that's really been the focus of IJM. There's, there's lots of forms of online sexual exploitation of children. There's what people call online grooming, where offenders you know, communicate directly to children. There's, of course, the sharing of known child sexual abuse materials uh, and the distribution of that online, uh, which is another big problem. But what IJM has been focused on is preventing children from being abused in the first instance to create these materials uh, in the first instance, because that's really the, the point of most um, harm and suffering is when the children are, are physically abused and exploited 
to create newer and newer materials to meet the demand of child sex offenders globally. And so when we talk about online sexual exploitation of children, it's really that the more narrow focus, uh, which is a form of human trafficking and, and modern slavery. And this is something that you've been working on for is it six years out in Cebu now? So we officially launched our program in Cebu in 2015 and then nationally in 2016. But some of the earliest cases we supported the Philippine government with were all the way back in 2011, um, when they started you know, receiving referrals of these cases. And, um, and we started hearing about you know, people in the Philippines just in their homes using laptops, smartphones, sexually abusing children and live streaming it. And we were just, you know, thrown by that um, because the children are uh, really, really young in this type of abuse. And so yeah, our first cases were in 2011, but then 2015, 2016, we sort of formally launched our, our national program to combat this crime. It's interesting, John, in the, in the recent report, that you've released that's titled Falling Short. The National Crime Agency in the UK refers to this type of activity as an emerging threat to children, which I think is correct. But I also think, how emerging is it? This crime has been taking place for some time now since, for many reasons perhaps you could explain, like the, the rollout of internet accessibility in developing nations and, and the fact that you've had this success in Cebu at going into places and taking away that level of impunity to the bar owners and the brothel owners. This is a, a behind the closed doors means of, of carrying out some form of trafficking. So once again, it's, it's great to see that IGM have been there a while and they've done lots of learning in the meantime to enable you to develop uh, your, your project and, and your understanding of how best to tackle this issue. And I know that there's more attention on it now than there has been possibly ever. One of the reasons being because of COVID-19, because of the fact that we're locked up at home, that all of the the different indices and, and organizations that watch and monitor this type of activity in the UK, our, our version is called the Internet Watch Foundation. And I know I've spoken to NICMIC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in America. There's an Australian version. We've all seen a huge rise, sometimes over 100% or more of material that's being exchanged online, an increase in reporting of, of child sexual exploitation. And, and so I wonder whether you could, you could maybe describe why you think that's taking place. Sure. So you referenced a few reports that IJM released. Uh, in May of this year, we released uh, a study uh, looking at the live streaming of child sexual exploitation in the Philippines and the global nature of the crime. We made several recommendations there, including the importance of improving detection and reporting of, of both live streaming and the production of new child sexual abuse materials. Because what we realized is the, the technology sector, the platforms on which this abuse is being live streamed or produced, were really struggling to detect it and report it. And so most of what's being uh, reported is the distribution of known child sexual abuse materials. And so that's really you know, consistent with what we've seen during the lockdown. You, know, you mentioned all of those different agencies who have reported just a massive surge 
in the distribution and, and access of child sexual abuse materials. And what we have learned at IJM is when, when you see a big surge in the accessing or distribution of known child sexual abuse materials, it's going to lead or coincide with an increase in the real hands-on sexual abuse and exploitation of children to create new child sexual abuse materials because you have to understand that this is a crime of supply and demand. And what, what uh, people in this space have learned is that child sex offenders around the world are not satisfied looking at the same you know, known materials over and over again. They, they are very much looking for new content, um, new photos, videos, live streams depicting the sexual abuse and exploitation of children. And so pretty much everybody agrees there's a consensus within international law enforcement, Europol, Interpol, and others that when you see an increase in distribution of known child sexual abuse materials, the hands-on sexual abuse and exploitation of children is also happening at, at higher rates to meet that demand. And, and that's really what we've seen during the COVID-19 lockdown. And, and it's, been, it's been documented. Um, certainly here in the Philippines, Philippine law enforcement has been very active in, uh, in combating this crime. Uh, over 100 victims have been rescued during the lockdown in the Philippines from the live streamed uh, sexual abuse and exploitation of children. Um, over 15 traffickers have actually been convicted in the Philippines through uh, remote uh, you know, video conferencing hearings. Uh, and, and we've seen the Philippines continue to arrest um, traffickers here, suspected traffickers during this time, which is really, really encouraging. But you know the, the last report that IGM released just a few weeks ago that you mentioned, falling short demand-side sentencing for online sexual exploitation of children, which really focused on the demand side. I think it's really, really important to talk about that because you know, what, what the report showed was that uh, in the UK, the live streaming offenders, the ones who are paying for the abuse, the ones who are you know, directing it in real time, these are the offenders who are really the money and minds behind the abuse. Without, without them paying for it, it's not going to happen because the, the traffickers on the source side are only interested in money. And so when they find demand side offenders in the UK who are willing to pay for it, then that's when they abuse children. Uh, and so what the report found is that those demand side offenders in the UK are getting really low sentences, unduly lenient sentences. The average uh, prison term was two years and four months for those, for those UK offenders, which is just not what's needed to uh, restrain them. It's not uh, a, a penalty that fits the crime. It doesn't meet the gravity uh, of, of their offending. And, and we interviewed and asked our you know, survivors in the Philippines who, who have gone through IGM's aftercare program and, and been rehabilitated. Uh, and they provided us with statements which are in Annex A of the report, uh, which is actually on, on the IGM UK website. And they just said over and over again, you know, these sentences are too low. Um, it doesn't fit the gravity of the harm that the survivors have gone through. And they said it really kind of belittled the crime of live streaming abuse. And so I think what's really, really important, you know, during this lockdown is that all demand side nations really assess their sentencing 
uh, schemes, you know, looking at their sentencing guidelines and what kind of laws they have in place and uh, what toolkit, what tools they give prosecutors and judges to make sure that these demand side offenders are actually held accountable, um, that they're, you know, that we end impunity for them too, um, and that they get a sentence that fits the crime. Because the reality is they're driving this abuse, not only of Filipino children, but of children in other countries too, in, in Thailand, in Cambodia, you know, in, in other source side nations. This is really a global crime of supply and demand. And, and you see that during the lockdown where I think in, in one month, uh, the IWF identified over 8 million attempts to access child sexual abuse you know, materials just out of the UK. Uh, you know, 8 million attempts from people, you know, you know, sitting and living in the United Kingdom, which is just remarkable. And so, you know, the UK National Crime Agency has said that the UK is the third largest consumer of live streamed uh, sexual abuse of children. And so I think that what we were, you know, trying to get out with the report is, hey, just as it's important for source side governments like the Philippines to take this crime seriously, it's just as important that demand side nations not only support Philippines and other countries with resources, but also make sure that the demand side of the equation is really strong and that the penalties fit the crime. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's going back to that issue of removing impunity. If someone thinks they can go online from the safety of their home and not only view, but in some cases direct the most unspeakable unspeakably horrific things to take place to human beings they know this isn't this isn't fantasy land this isn't animation this is reality and that's what gives them their kicks and then if they're found guilty if if they're prosecuted they're looking at a jail time of two years and four months on average that's not a suitable deterrent and i see that savage javid is is in support of your findings i wonder what we could do the, the listeners to this podcast are social justice people they're switched on they care about these issues and they're going to want to respond in some way how could they yeah i think you know we, we certainly have the support of the the former home secretary as you mentioned who wrote an op-ed this past weekend uh in the sun uh and uh, and then the week before that the telegraph wrote uh, a story on this which uh which is also really good so i do encourage people you know um readers to go and uh you know, uh, look those up. And um, I think you can also follow um, at IJMUK uh, on Twitter. They, they've been sharing, you know, articles. Uh, they've shared the report. It's actually on the IJMUK website. It is called Falling Short. And I think, you know, certainly those who are listening in can, can uh, you know, read the report. Uh, there's a summary, which is just about five pages. And then, and share that on your social media, you know, accounts, just to sort of continue educating people about the crime of OSEC, about you know the work that IJM is doing, um, and and some of the the solutions. You know, I think it's definitely within reach of the UK government to to strengthen the sentences. We've we've made ten recommend uh, actually nine recommendations in the paper, and and I think you know everything from improving the sentencing guidelines to making sure that the voices of survivors are heard uh, when judges are sentencing these offenders. So, um, yeah, I think, I think those are some of the, the more immediate things that, that people could do and, and stay tuned for more opportunities to, to share about this work. Um, IJM UK 
obviously is, uh, you know, continues to share products and resources on their website and on their social media platforms about all the work of IJM, not only on about online sexual exploitation of children, but other forms of modern slavery, you know, around the world that, and, and violence against women and children that were, we as an organization are committed to, to stopping. And I think, I think globally what we were seeking to advance and support is a global movement uh, where governments, where tech, uh, tech companies, financial platforms, international institutions, and, and really just average you know, uh, individuals just are calling for justice, are calling for accountability for people in poverty who around the world are being abused and, um, and they really need systems of accountability in their, in their home countries. And so a global movement where people are protected from violence, where you know, governments and the corporate sector and international uh, you know, development institutions prioritize protecting children by strengthening justice systems. I think these are all things that we can be doing more and more of because what I have seen in my six years with IJM is you know, when you can improve the capacity of a local justice system, the police, the prosecutors, the courts, the social service providers, then you will actually protect children um, on the ground. You protect women from violence. Um, you change the equation on the ground. And I think, um, you know, it's important to pass laws. It's important to, you know, make sure that, you know, interna international instruments are, are, uh, are signed and things like that. But at the end of the day, you have to support local implementation of laws and the local justice system. That's really you know, kind of the bullseye when it comes to protecting uh, children and women from, from all forms of violence and slavery. So I think those who are listening to our podcast, yeah, just continue to follow IJM on, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, uh, and, uh, and then you'll find more opportunities to, to support the work. John, in closing, I wonder whether you could tell me, for, from someone that has worked in this field for, for quite some time now and has probably been witness to some horrendous things, some, the, the darker side of human nature, I wonder what, what gives you hope, where you get your hope from and, and what your hope is for the future. Yeah, so, you know, we've, we've supported the Philippine government in rescuing over 700 victims of of livestream abuse in the Philippines. And honestly, every single one of those children and women who are now safe, are now protected, are receiving you know, therapy, are in school, uh, that's really what gives me hope. I, I've just, um, I've heard so many survivor stories uh, and they're just remarkable children, remarkable women who have such great courage um, and, and they're starting to share their stories with, with the world. And they've launched a, a, actually a global survivor network uh, to share stories of hope and courage. And so for me, you know, every time I, I hear a survivor story or I interact with a survivor, um, or I just read a statement from a survivor, as, as we put in, in the Falling Short report, I just have so much hope because the survivors are telling us that it's worth it. It's worth the fight. Um, it's worth our resources, it's worth our advocacy, it's worth all of our efforts. Because if you can actually help, you know, people be protected from this violence and help them help them be safeguarded, um, then they actually have so much to look forward to in their life. And so 
whether it's 700 or you know it's thousands and thousands of people that iGEM has supported you know over the years it's just totally worth it and so for me it's why you know after being in this work for six years and yeah you do see the ugly you hear you know about this abuse and it's easy to want to to want to look the other way but i would just encourage people to to lean in to to come closer to the work that igm is doing with our partners in the philippines and around the world and engage with it like engage read the stories share you know if it's it's, it's what you do financially that you want to support support because there's just so much hope and and you know, one of the things you mentioned early on is there's a lot of global attention on this issue right now of online sexual exploitation of children and even live streaming. And I've never seen more NGOs and institutions and governments uh, like We Protect Global Alliance and the Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children and so many others who are all focused on, on protecting children from this you know, crime in person and online. And so I just have so much hope uh, that we're gonna we're gonna get this right globally. Uh, we're gonna protect children. We're gonna make it so that offenders who abuse children are are held accountable and and can't abuse with impunity. We're gonna ensure that the technology is there to really protect children, you know, through safety by design and other principles. Um, and I am really encouraged, even by what the Technology Coalition is doing in uh, reinvigorating themselves and launching something called Project Protect, uh, which is really meant to improve the, the tech company's response to you know, online sexual exploitation of children. So I've got so much hope that, that we can do this. And, uh, and with listeners, you know, like on this podcast, doing something, you know, just sharing the podcast, going and reading the paper we publish on IJM UK's website, um, every little thing that we do, every step that we take makes a difference and it all builds momentum to a larger, uh, you know, global response. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes people ask that question, like, how do you still have hope? It's such an ugly crime. It's so horrible. But uh, I've got so much hope right now. And, and I hope that, that the listeners would also have hope as well. Absolutely. It's infectious just hearing it come from you. I wonder, you mentioned the survivors' stories that that bring you hope, and that since this project's been started, there's been over seven hundred lives rescued. Perhaps you could just close by by sharing one, if you have one to mind. Yeah, so there's a a survivor who goes by the pseudonym of Joy, and uh, she's just a, a remarkable woman with so much courage and hope and. You know, she was exploited in online um, sexual exploitation by, by someone, you know, close to her who she trusted, an adult who, who was her, her caregiver. Um, and, you know, for years and years, she was abused and, and the offenders were from all over the world. And, and, but when she, she was rescued and, and she's gone through iGEM's aftercare program, you know, she really said something that she didn't just want it to stop with her rescue, but she wanted to be a voice uh, for other victims who needed to be rescued. And, and she worked with IGM to create this, this mini documentary uh, called I Am Brave. Uh, and if you look it up, you'll find it on, on, on Vimeo and YouTube and uh, IGM has shared it on Facebook. But if you look up I, I Am Brave, IJM, you just, you hear her story. Um, and it's just so encouraging to me 
Uh, she even, you know, traveled to the UK in 2019, um, and she shared her story. She, she spoke at the We Protect Global Alliance uh, Summit in Addis Ababa uh, in the African Union headquarters. And, and it was just, you know, you could have heard a pin drop when she shared her testimony. And she's now graduated, um, you know, from, from college, and, uh, and she's moving on to, to support other victims and survivors. So for me, Joy's story is just such a beautiful story. I, I've met her so many times and she's not, you know, somebody who you would think was abused for years uh, because she's not living a life of defeat, but she's living a life of courage and hope and resilience and thriving. Uh, and so that's really for me, the, a story that I, I love to share. Uh, it's just so encouraging that there's something about human beings, there's something about children that they can actually overcome some of the worst uh, forms of abuse. They're so resilient um, and, and they can actually triumph. And so for me, it's just yeah, stories that, like of, of joy and, and other survivors that really just continue to encourage me uh, and give me hope because she's a fighter. She didn't let what happened to her keep her down, um, but now she's really um, you know, a survivor leader uh, around the world. So yeah, thanks for asking. That's, that's really the story that comes to mind. I love it. I absolutely love it. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for talking with us this morning and, and all the amazing work you're doing, John. It's, it's really, it's really valuable. So keep, keep doing what you're doing. We support you. We thank you. And we will look at our end to, to see what we can do in support of this too. Thank you for your, your time. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. What a superstar. I'm so pleased that John answered the call and moved his family from Chicago to the Philippines those seven years ago. That decision will have no doubt affected hundreds of lives. What a way to spend your life in the protection of the most vulnerable. Very inspiring indeed. I would really like to encourage you to take a look at those studies that John mentioned in our conversation. I've put a link to the summary documents of both of them in the podcast description. They're only a few pages long and well worth the read. One of the shocking statistics I learned from reading these studies is that the average age of a child who is being victimized in this way in the Philippines is just 11 years old, with cases involving older and far younger victims, including babies and toddlers. I'm also shocked to hear that the UK is the third biggest consumer of live streamed child abuse. What a badge of shame. Last year, over 8 million attempts were made to access child sexual abuse materials by UK internet users alone. There's another one. I'm also appalled by the disproportionate and thoroughly inadequate sentencing that is being handed out in British courts for perpetrators who are viewing and in some cases dictating this abuse. The recently released study titled Falling Short, produced by International Justice Mission, found that UK offenders were sentenced on average to less than two and a half years in prison. What sort of a message does that send to online sex offenders? And more importantly, what sort of a message does that send to the victims? Does that seem in any way a fitting judicial consequence of this particular brand of venality? Is that an adequate deterrent for would-be offenders? 
I would suggest not. This is a demand-fueled industry. Strip away the demand and with it goes the supply. We need to make the internet a more hostile environment for offenders. It remains a very low-risk crime for desktop child abusers in the UK and all over the world. We're not done here. We'll probably come back to this issue later in the series. There's definitely a conversation to be had on the challenges of policing the internet. Should we be holding technology companies responsible for the abuse that is taking place on their platforms? I think so. But let's leave it there for now. I've also put a link in the show notes to the video telling Joy's redemptive story of hope. So after you've got done reading the summary reports, make sure you watch that one too. Do go and check out the amazing work of IJM and find out how you can support them. Their website is www.ijm.org. IJM are a chosen charity that we support at Blue Bear Coffee Co., the producer of this podcast. You can find out how and indeed why we do that by going to our website, www.bluebearcoffee.com. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. Stay safe. Speak soon. Peace.